going to be looking at the Day of Atonement today, Leviticus 23, uh, verses 26 through 32 will be our text that we read together. Uh, the Day of Atonement is instituted in Leviticus 16, and so we are going to be spending actually quite a bit of time in Leviticus 16. Um, it's just a couple pages back. You can turn there at the appropriate time if you want. But uh, Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. Two. This was supposed to be the last day of, of the sermons on the feasts. Uh, we had a snow day uh, six weeks ago or so, and so we got pushed back a week. And so we'll finish up the feasts the week after Easter with the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. We're going to look at the Day of Atonement today, Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. Hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God read for you now. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves, and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day, because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening. You are to observe your Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our great and awesome God, you have the words of life. To whom else can we go? Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to hear what you have to say. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to better understand the good news of the gospel that we are sinners who deserve death and hell, but who've been given life in heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So up to this point, there's been a fairly logical progression to the feasts of Leviticus 23. The first feast was Passover, and that pointed us forward to the cross. The second feast was unleavened bread, and this pointed us forward to the tomb. The third feast was first fruits, and first fruits found its parallel in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, Paul says. The fourth feast was the feast of weeks, and this pointed us forward to Pentecost and to the gift of the Holy Spirit. The fifth feast, the one we looked at last week, was the feast of trumpets, and this pointed us forward to the preaching of the gospel, which is the fundamental task of the Spirit-filled church. Up until now, there's been a a logical progression. 
And the last feast even, the Feast of Booths, which we'll look at in two weeks, points us forward to, to heaven, okay? It, it fits the progression. The feasts have followed, really, the events of the New Testament and, and the, the events of the Christian life. But now, we come to, to the Day of Atonement. And without a doubt, without question, our attention is again drawn to the cross. The cross is where atonement was made for our sins once and for all. The cross is where the day of atonement ultimately pointed. Okay, the writer of Hebrews makes this clear, if it's not clear enough from the rest of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 and 10 that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats cannot take away sin. They only pointed forward to the one who would. That's Christ. All of these sacrifices just pointed beyond themselves to the once-for-all sacrifice that is Jesus. That is where our sins are forgiven, through Jesus' death on the cross. And he even goes on to say specifically that, that the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter the Holy of Holies once a year and offer blood that wasn't his own, but now Jesus has come and he's died and he's entered, entered the real Holy of Holies. He's entered heaven itself once and for all with his own blood to make atonement for the people. His point is the Day of Atonement and all the festivities and fanfare that took place on it, they all point to the cross. Now what's up with this? Why, why the redundancy so far as the feasts are concerned? Why do, we, why do we, in a sense, go back to where we started in that progression? I mean, many of the themes on the Day of Atonement um, overlap with many of the themes of, of Passover. Why the redundancy? Why the pause and the progression to return to the cross? I pondered that this week. I was trying to grasp the significance of it, and then I realized that maybe, maybe a better question to ask is, why not a return to the cross? I mean, the cross has the preeminent place in redemptive history. That's clear when you look at this sanctuary, isn't it? The cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. It's all around you. The cross has preeminent place in redemptive history. When the Apostle Paul went to Corinth, what did he say? He said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross has the preeminent place in redemptive history. Without the cross, there is no Easter. Without the cross, there is no gift of the Holy Spirit. Without the cross, there is no gospel to trumpet to the ends of the earth. Without the cross, there is no heaven for us to enjoy forever. The cross has the preeminent place in redemptive history. It's even interesting when you get into the book of Revelation, which ultimately takes us into the throne room of heaven, and you'll see that even in heaven, they're still obsessed with the cross. I looked, and before me was a lamb looking like it had been slain. Even in heaven, they can't get over the cross. You know, it, to me, it's as if in putting the Day of Atonement where He does on the, on the festal calendar, God is saying, hey, hey, 
in light of all these spiritual truths I've illustrated for you in the feasts, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the blood. Don't forget the one who died in order that a sinner like you might live by the Spirit and might trumpet the gospel and might look forward to heaven. In that regard, then, this is a wonderful place for us to be on Palm Sunday, at the beginning of Holy Week. As this text ultimately sets forth and points to some of the most precious truths regarding the cross of our Lord and Savior. This text can really help us get in the the proper frame of mind, and it can put our spirits and our hearts in the right place for the week ahead. The Day of Atonement took place on the 10th day of the seventh month in Israel. That's 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. You might know the Day of Atonement today by its more familiar name of Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, and Kippur is the Hebrew word for, I'll give you one guess, atonement. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I should say that 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 Hebrew word Kippur um, literally means, it's translated atonement, it literally means to, to cover, all right? So, day of covering, we might say, and ultimately when you apply that to our sin, it's, it's the covering of your sins or, or the, the remedying of your sins or making satisfaction for your sins or, or whatever, but, but, but day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And we, as I said, we read about the institution of this day in Leviticus 16, and so I, I really want you to turn back there. We will come back at the end to Leviticus 23, but if you just back up a few pages to Leviticus 16, this is, this is the institution of the Day of Atonement. This is where God hands down the instructions for His people and especially for the priests in regards to the observance of this day. So Leviticus 16, the very first thing I want you to notice this morning is who it is that takes the initiative on the Day of Atonement. Who it is that takes the initiative on the Day of Atonement. Look at those first words. When you're reading your Bible through in like a year or three years or however you do it, these are words that you just skip over. You don't think much about them. But look at these first words. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. Those words are very significant. Because they they mean that the Lord has taken the initiative in bringing this about. The Lord in His mercy and in His grace and in His love here, is making provision for sinful people. This is not something that Israel thought of themselves. This isn't something Moses came up with one night. He woke up, he said, Lord, we have a problem. Um, We need you to do something about our sin. We need you to make amends for it. We need you to cover it. We need you to blot it out. We need you to atone for it. That's not what happened. This isn't isn't something they made up in order to pacify their God. No, the Day of Atonement was a provision made by God Himself. This Day of Atonement flowed from His fatherly heart of love for His sinful people. And so it is is with the cross. So it is with the the cross. Sometimes we, we, we sort of think that Jesus came and he, 
he, he put himself between us and an, and an angry God, right? As if, as if God the Father was just bent on destroying us, bent on wrecking us, bent on pouring out his wrath upon us, and then Jesus kind of stepped in and he sort of convinced God otherwise. John Owen used to say that there's a spiritual sickness among the people of God and that they, that they, they do believe in the love of God the Son towards them, but they really struggle to believe and accept the love of God the Father towards them. Yes, Jesus loves me, but the Father, not quite sure whether or not he can be trusted. John Owen used to say that's a problem among us. It causes us to, to, to have a lack of trust in, in God, not sure if we can totally trust him, not sure if we can totally, what we can totally expect from him. But when we see these words, right, the Lord spoke to Moses, we're reminded of what the New Testament tells us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That, that, that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The initiative in atonement, first on the day of atonement long ago, but then, but then later at the cross, it lies with God. It's a, it's a provision of God's love for his sinful and wayward people. Notice second, the background for the day of atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Now, we read about the death of Aaron's two sons in Leviticus 10. You don't have to turn there, but there we're we're told that, that Aaron's two sons, they approached the Lord in an inappropriate way. They worshiped him in a way that was contrary to his command, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and it consumed them certainly wasn't a proud moment so far as Israel was concerned. And, and it's certainly not a coincidence that this event serves as the backdrop for the Day of Atonement. Because the Day of Atonement is ultimately about the removal of sin. You can see that in the text it's stated clearly in verse 34, atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. This day is about the removal of sin. And what does the story of Aaron's two sons illustrate? But that sin is real. It's real, and it's far more serious than any one of us like to think. We live in a world that downplays sin and its consequences. This is seen in a a whole, whole host of ways. Um, one place we see it is at, is at funerals, for instance. You've noticed this, certainly. At funerals, it seems, salvation is no longer by grace through faith in Christ. Salvation is by death. You know, if a person dies, they're in heaven. Salvation by death. You hear that sentiment all over. Maybe we've even thought along similar lines. That is a means of downplaying sin and its consequences. I think, of, I think of songs on the radio. I used, to, I used to listen to country music. I think it's terrible anymore, but I'm of the Garth Brooks age, as you all know. Um, maybe you'll even think that's terrible. I'm getting off topic. Anyway, uh, there's a song on the radio right now, Luke Bryan. He says, I believe most people are good. 
Sounds innocent enough. We're going to talk about total depravity in a few weeks. I'm going to bring that back up. Sounds innocent enough, but I encourage you to listen to the whole song, and you'll see for what it is. It's a downplaying of sin. Think about everybody's favorite attribute of God. God is love. People are quick to say that. They're quick to proclaim it from the rooftops. Now, now yes, it is, it is gloriously true. God is love. <laughs> he is. But many, we know many, they, they, they proclaim that as a way of downplaying their sin. Many proclaim that as a way of saying, since God is love, I can live however I want. I need not fear his wrath. He loves me just the way I am. It's seen also in how people react to these passages in the Bible, like ones regarding Aaron's sons, where the wrath of God is just suddenly poured out against them, where you think of Uzzah, who touches the ark, and he's struck down dead, where you think of Ananias and Sapphira, they go into the temple, they tell a little lie, they're struck down dead, and you read those sometimes, and you're like, whoa, God, whoa, man, chill out, isn't that a little intense? The problem in those situations is not with God, I assure you, it is with us. We think much too low of sin. And we're conditioned by our world. We live in a world that says sin is no big deal. That is not true. Sin is real and sin is serious. When the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's not playing around. When it says the wages of sin is death, it is not exaggerating. When it says the soul who sins will die, it's not using hyperbole. And stories like this one regarding Aaron's sons, they're meant to make this point. Our sin is real. And in light of God's holiness, it's a serious problem. One pastor says, without the black backdrop of our sinful nature and its consequences. The gospel is a big yawn. Say that again. Without the black backdrop of our sinful nature and its consequences, the gospel is a big yawn. To put it another way, without the bad news, there's no good news. Friends, it's the reality of sin and its consequences that makes the gospel good news. It's the reality of sin and its consequences that makes the gospel worth sharing. It's the reality of sin and its consequences that is going to move us to live on mission in the world. I mean, I mean, maybe that's part of the reason we don't live on mission more. Maybe it's part of the reason we're, we're so reserved with our faith. It's because we have a low view of sin, and we have a low view of its consequences, and we have a low view of what's going to happen to that person across the street if they remain unrepentant. And living in unbelief. Sin is real. And it's the reality of our sin and its consequences that serves as the backdrop for the day of atonement. It's the reality of sin and its consequences that ultimately serves as the backdrop for the cross. It's the reality of sin and its consequences that makes sense of this. Third, the significance of the day of atonement. Verse 16:2 The Lord said to Moses, "Tell your brother Aaron not to come, not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover or else he will die." Okay, going into the most holy place, going into the holy of holies, it was a serious matter. 
if Israel did not understand this after the death of Aaron's two sons, they never would. Going into the Holy of Holies was serious. And the priests, under the Old Covenant, they could not do it whenever they wanted. The Day of Atonement was the one day a year. The one day a year when the high priest only could go behind the curtain. It was the one day a year when the high priest only could enter the Holy of Holies in order that he might make atonement for the sins of the Israelites. It's a significant day. Of course, it's worth recalling what happened when Christ died. Matthew 27, 50 and 51. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at the moment Jesus died, at the moment he gave up his spirit, the curtain, which the high priest was only permitted to go behind once a year, it's torn in two. It's, it's rent asunder. It's done away with. And of course, the significance of that is that the way into God's presence has been opened once and for all. The significance is now, no longer does God say, do not come into my presence whenever you want. Don't you dare think about doing that. No, now now he says this to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain by his blood, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That's That's the new covenant reality. The significance of the Day of Atonement and that it was the day in which the high priest could go behind the curtain points forward to the even greater significance of the cross. Now all people through faith in Jesus can go behind the curtain, can enter into God's presence now and always and every day because of Jesus and because of His blood. Notice forth the drama of the Day of Atonement. God had a flair for the dramatic, that is for sure. We see that in these feasts. Read Leviticus 16, you'll see that the priest was to offer sacrifices for himself and his own family. That's part of it, but the, but the drama, the excitement of the day centered on these two goats that he was to select for the Israelites. You see that in verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering. And then in verse 7, he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the desert. So there's two goats. Lots are cast. One goat's going to be offered as a, as a sin offering. It's going to be sacrificed. The other goat is going to remain alive. It's going to be sent out into the desert as a scapegoat. Now we, we read about the first goat, which is sacrificed in verses 15 through 18. 
I'll summarize it for you. Here we're told Aaron is to slaughter the goat and he's to take the goat's blood and then he's to, he's to go first into the Holy of Holies. He's to go behind the curtain and he's to, he's to sprinkle that blood on the atonement cover, the mercy seat. That's the lid of the ark. And he's to, he's to sprinkle that blood around and in, in front of the ark. And then after that, he's, he's to leave the Holy of Holies. He's to do the same thing in the tent of meeting. That's the area outside. He's to sprinkle that blood all over the tent of meeting. And then after that, he's to sprinkle the blood on the altar, we're told. So he's to sprinkle blood all throughout the tabernacle. There's going to be blood everywhere. This was not a neat celebration. Okay? Blood, blood in the Holy of Holies, blood in the tent of meeting, blood on the horns of the altar, blood everywhere. And it seems that through this, God was, God was illustrating that sin had really left its mark on everything. But through this, God was teaching His people something. He was teaching His people something about atonement. He was teaching His people something about how their sins would be covered, how their sins would be dealt with. And it would be through the shedding of blood. And make no mistake, the shedding of blood in the ancient world, was synonymous with the laying down of one's life. Essentially, through this sacrifice, God was saying, Hey, Israel, something needs to die for your sin. That's what my justice demands. The wages of sin is death. Something needs to die for your sin. Something needs to give its life because of your sin. After this, Aaron was to bring forward the live goat. We see this in verse 20 and following. He's to take the live goat, and in the sight of all the people, he's to place both hands on the head of the live goat. And he's to confess over the live goat the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites. All their sins, the text says, he is to put them on the goat's head. Okay, the act of placing his hands on the goat's head was an act of like transference, an act of substitution. It's a way of saying this goat represents us. This goat is taking our place. And as he confessed the sins of the people, their sins then were being placed on the goat. Read in verse 21 and 22, the goat was to be sent into the desert, and it will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. Now, this certainly would have been a powerful thing for the Israelites to witness. Here's their sins transferred by the high priest to the goat, and there goes the goat out into the wilderness, carrying all their sins with him. What's God teaching his people here? In the first one, he was teaching them that, that atonement would, would come through blood. In the second one, he's teaching them that atonement would be accomplished by a substitute. Atonement will be accomplished by, by a substitute. It'll be accomplished by another. There is one, he is saying, who will, who will take your sins and who will take your sorrows and who will make them his very own who will bear the burden to Calvary and suffer and die alone in a solitary place. All that, of course, comes to light in, in the New Testament. But, but in the first one, 
Atonement will come through blood. And the second goat, atonement will come through a substitute. Atonement will come through one who takes your place. Of course, as Scripture goes on, these two truths of, of sacrifice and substitution, they kind, of, they kind of come together, don't they? They come to focus on one individual. We see it first in Isaiah when the prophet says, Surely he took up our infirmities. Surely he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You can picture your hand on the goat's head. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. These two truths of of, of sacrifice and of substitution, they they come together. They become focused. This whole thing becomes even clearer as we turn to to the New Testament. Jesus dies on the cross. What does the apostle Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, God made him, him, the Lord Jesus Christ, God made him who knew no sin. He made him to be sin for us. He put our sin upon him. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. And then he's writing to the, to the church in Galatia. And he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For us. In our place. In our stead. As our substitute. For, for us. In the drama on the day of atonement. God was teaching his people how atonement would ultimately be accomplished. Someone would die in their place. Someone would bear their sins. Of course, who could have thought in the days of Moses that that someone was God himself in the person of Jesus Christ? Lastly, notice the, notice the requirement God makes of his people. You'll notice the people, uh, the people don't have a lot to do in all of this. In fact, we can turn back to Leviticus 23 here. Leviticus 16 is really the instructions given to the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23 is concerned more with the people's role in all this. And the people, they don't, they don't have much to do. There's a sense in which they're just kind of just sit back And observe, the hard work belongs to the high priest. But there's a couple things the people are to do. In the first place, they're to do no work. It's to be a Sabbath unto the Lord. That's the case with all of these feasts. In the second place, they're to deny themselves. They're to deny themselves. We see that three times in Leviticus 23, don't we? It's the resounding note in our passage. Verse 27, 29, and 32. The people are to deny themselves. And if they don't deny themselves, God makes it clear, they will be cut off. They will be destroyed. They have no place among the people of God. Now, what is this denying of themselves? Well, it involved fasting. It involved fasting. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, the Day of Atonement is referred to as the Day of the Fast. Fast was kind of the hallmark activity of God's people on the Day of Atonement. But ultimately... Ultimately, this, this fasting and this, uh, this denying themselves, it's, 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 it's a phrase used to express repentance. 
and sorrow and grief for sin. Let me ask you this question. What, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? The fact is, all of us, all of us have an innate sense of guilt. All of us have an awareness within that we have not measured up to some standard. What do you do with that? How, how, do, you, how do you cope with that? To be sure, our, our world has its ways. One way is to simply deny it, ignore it. Our culture is very good at this. Young people, your generation is very good at this. You know, I'm all right, you're all right, everything's all right. It's a denial. We know better than that. I'm not all right. Everything's not all right. That screen's not all right. Maybe we don't deny it. Maybe we try and justify it. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product of my upbringing. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom left us. Don't blame me for the mistakes I've made. It's not, it's not my fault. The new way I think of dealing with it today is to call sin righteousness. It's to call that which God has told us is wicked, good and okay and normal. This has happened with, with sexual immorality. In our world today, many forms of sexual immorality have become acceptable, good, right, expected, okay, celebrated. We all have an awareness of our guilt, of our failings. What do we do with it? How do we, how do we cope with it? How do you cope with it? Do you, do you deny it and pretend it's not there? Do you shift the blame to others? Do you do some moral gymnastics so you might depict your sin as virtue? Do you wallow in it? That's another way we might deal with it. Do you wallow in it? What do you do with your guilt? Here on the Day of Atonement, God was making it clear, and is making it clear, what we should do with it. We should be honest about it. We should, we should own it. We, should, we shouldn't pretend it's not there. We shouldn't pretend we're okay. We shouldn't pretend like we've got it all together. We shouldn't pretend like we've met some high and holy standard. No, we should confess to God that we've sinned and that we've failed. And we should mourn and we should weep and we should grieve for it. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. We're to do it all in view of the atonement that God has provided for us at the cross. God told these people to deny themselves on the day of atonement. He told them to deny themselves on the day they watched the goat walk away with their sin. We're to deny themselves in view of the cross, in view of what Christ has done. Too often I'm afraid we, we leave this last part out, especially I don't know if the world leaves it out, but in the church, I think we have a tendency to leave this last part out. The 19th century pastor, Robert Murray McChain, experienced a tremendous amount of sorrow for sin throughout his life. But it's noteworthy 
what his friend Andrew Bonar said about him after his death. It will be observed that despite all his conviction of sin, he never reckoned his soul saved until he went into the Holy of Holies on the warrant of his Redeemer's work. For assuredly, a sinner is still under wrath until he has actually availed himself of the way to the Father opened up by Jesus. All his knowledge of his sinfulness, all his sad feeling of his own need and danger cannot place him one step farther from the lake of fire. It is only he that comes to Christ that is saved. Bonar's point there is that sorrow for sin alone is not enough. One must also come to Christ. One must also trust Jesus with their sin. That's true repentance. That's godly repentance. It's repentance made in faith. Charles Spurgeon once said, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for my sins at the foot of the cross. To an unbeliever, that makes no sense at all. But to the one who has felt, by God's grace, the guilt and condemnation of their sin, and who has entrusted that guilt and condemnation and sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute, it makes perfect sense. There is a happiness. There is a joy for the sinner at the foot of the cross. Your sin has been taken away. It's been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Dear friend, if you've never wept for sin, for your sin, at the foot of the cross, if you've never trusted your sin to Jesus, who on the cross was all anguish in order that you might be all joy, who was cast off that you might be brought in, who was was trodden down as an enemy that you might be welcomed as a friend, who has surrendered to hell's worst, that you might attain heaven's best. If you've never brought your sin to Jesus, I urge you to do so this morning. I urge you to do so right now. I don't want you just to feel sorry for your sin and say, I want you to trust it to Christ. I want you to trust that Jesus has taken it away from you. It's gone. If you've never done that, I urge you to do it today. Wait no longer. Do it before it's too late. Your sin is real. It is. Our holy God cannot overlook it, but the good news is He's made a way. He's made a way. He's taken the initiative. He's come by His grace and by His mercy and by His love. And He says, I've sent my Son, and whoever believes in Him will be saved. He's made a way. Will you take His way? Will you take his way? Will you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus? Or will you go your own way and be cut off and destroyed like the Israelites who refused to listen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that you took it upon yourself to provide atonement for the sins of your people. 
Lord, you would have been perfectly just to let any one of us go on our merry way to hell. You would have been perfectly just to let the world tick on as it always did until time ran out. But you were merciful. And you took the initiative. And because you love the world, you sent your son to save us. Help us to take the way of salvation. Help us not just to wallow in sin, but to trust it to our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our song of response is the power of the cross. Why don't we stand and sing that together? Receive the parting blessing.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Thank you.